WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. There are numerous ways that we can manipulate cells, bacteria, and other organisms. For example, temperature is one way that we can do that. Today we're talking to Emily Greeson about her research on temperature and manipulating cells. Thank you so much for joining us today, Emily. May you please tell us more about yourself and your research? Hi, my name is Emily Greeson. I'm from the CONTAG lab in the Department of Microbiology and Molecular Genetics at Michigan State University. I work with Bacillus subtilis, which is a bacterium. It's normally found in the soil. I work with it in the lab, studying its genetics and how we can improve those genetics for different therapeutic effects. One of the ways we look at that is temperature-sensitive repressors, which is using temperature to control gene expression or how to produce proteins. Thanks for coming in to talk with us, Emily. You said that you're working with these set of genes, but what about them makes them so interesting when it comes to your work? Temperature-sensitive repressors are really interesting to study because they only difference in the genes in a high temperature and a low temperature state is that they melt and then refold. So you're actually not changing the system too much when you're adding the heat. So it's a really interesting system to study. I imagine that there must be some type of threshold of the temperature with this bacterium. For example, some bacteria survive really well in the cold versus the heat. We actually had an episode about that where some bacteria were even growing in heat vents in the ocean. So is there a heat limit with your bacteria and what they can survive in? Definitely. And that's one of the reasons why we picked Bacillus subtilis, which is again, a soil bacterium. So soil bacterium We live in Michigan, so we can imagine a wide range of temperatures that those bacteria need to survive in. And so our system can grow all the way down to 25 degrees Celsius, which is about room temperature, growing uh, and producing protein still. But it can not have a stress response as high as 48 degrees C, which is a little bit over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And so that is still not a stress response for that bacteria. And so that's one of the reasons it's good to study with these temperature-sensitive repressors. I know for farmers and those that study agriculture, having an understanding of these soil bacteria can be really important. Let's talk a little bit about the temperature repressors and what that means on a genetic level. When it comes to this, what exactly is being repressed by these different temperature ranges? So specifically, temperature-sensitive repressors are repressing transcription. So for a little bit of an explanation, transcription is taking DNA and transcribing it into RNA, which is another type of nucleic acid or way of storing information. And then after that, we have translation, which takes RNA and makes it into protein. So specifically, these temperature-sensitive repressors are blocking the transcription process, so we're keeping it at a DNA level. So these TSRs, the temperature-sensitive repressors, are repressing the gene expression so that proteins aren't being created afterward. Correct. Oftentimes, the system we're studying We have two parts of a protein called dimers that are together and blocking the gene from being transcribed. In a higher temperature, 
And then when they melt apart, that allows the rest of the cell machinery to bind to the gene and continue with transcription and translation, which we talked about leads to that protein production. So essentially, protein production isn't happening. But what if it was happening? How would that affect the surrounding soil, for example? So essentially, I study Bacillus subtilis and this gene system in vitro, which means in a test tube or in a dish, but with the intent of using this system in a variety of methods in the future. And so one of those applications could be back in the soil. So if you're not doing this like a plant biology experiment where you have the soil samples and you have the hopes that this can translate into future research and applications, what other applications are there? So the good news about Bacillus subtilis is that it falls into a category called GRAS, which stands for Generally Recognized as Safe. And so this means this bacteria can be used in different health systems, delivering drugs as therapeutics, also known as bacteria therapies. You may have heard of probiotics, things that are in yogurts, or it could be an industry used to produce protein for different research purposes, or again, for plant and soil science research. So the, there are a lot of varieties. That makes a lot of sense. I use probiotics all the time to help regulate my digestive system, especially if I'm having something like really spicy, for example. You briefly touched upon how you were actually studying these TSRs, but when it comes to the work that you're doing in the laboratory, how do you, for example, even determine whether or not the protein is present in your samples or not? So in our system, we use something called luciferase, which is an enzyme or just a protein for this purpose that produces bioluminescence, which is light that can be measured by a camera. And so we call this a reporter gene, meaning it tells us when the gene is being produced with light output. But in different applications, that reporter gene would be switched with something like a drug or your gene of interest, like the gene that you would want to use for that system. So I've heard of locks before, and I've heard of this technique before as well. However, I've heard of this research in other organisms that were not Bacillus subtilis. Did you all only do this in Bacillus subtilis? So this research actually with these temperature-sensitive repressors was previously published in E. coli or Escherichia coli, which is a common lab strain. Before that, the genes originally came from Salmonella typhimurium, which is a digestive tract parasite. And so with synthetic biology, we pulled these genes and put them into this Bacillus subtilis system. So these temperature-sensitive repressors operate at a pretty wide range of different temperatures. How are you subjugating these bacteria to these different temperatures? Are you using a heat bath or something? So I'm glad you asked. We actually use a couple different methods. So the first method we use is an incubator, which is kind of like the reverse of a refrigerator. It keeps our bacteria warm and at a specific temperature. And so we can test them at specific temperatures and see, are they growing and are they producing light? The second method we use is a thermocycler. And so kind of as the name sounds, it's cycling through different temperatures. 
And this allows us to set different temperatures for different amounts of time in a test tube to test our bacteria and then measure light output afterwards. The third system is called the HYPER system, H-Y-P-E-R, and it's from a company called Magnetic Insight. And it's a newer system that actually involves magnets. And so that's where we needed to add a little bit more to our bacteria to use that system. So we really haven't heard much about magnetism controlling temperature. Could you tell us more about that, please? This system uses a technique called hyperthermia, or increasing temperature, by using radio frequencies or electromagnetic fields. And so basically, there are two magnets, and they create an electromagnetic field. And that's where that magnetism comes in. And so connecting it back to a temperature change We need something in the middle to exchange that energy from one type into another. So we use nanoparticles that are magnetic themselves and respond to this magnetic field. And that converts the magnetic energy from the instrument into kinetic energy or energy of movement, which moves our particles in our system and creates heat energy that transfers to the bacteria. While this sounds really interesting and innovative, it also sounds pretty expensive. What is the advantage of heating your samples with these magnetic nanoparticles versus something more conventional? So conventional methods, like you said, are definitely less expensive and make sense in a laboratory setting where you're using it in a test tube. However, This hyperthermia or using this magnetic system to heat allows it to be less invasive. And so if you think about a treatment in a medical application, you want it to be as little invasiveness as possible. Things like MRIs are similar to this hyperthermia system with the magnets. And so we actually went one step further and with this hyper system, this magnet system, we can study the system in a mouse. We could not study the system in a mouse using other applications. So let's say you were going to take this out into the field and use it just for this example on soil samples. How would that look exactly? So for soil samples, you'd want to consider the different temperatures that are present in your system and what genes you're turning on, meaning what proteins do you want to produce and at what temperatures. And so remember, in a low temperature, your genes are off and your protein is not available, and at higher temperatures, it is. There are also switches in the opposite direction. And so then you would pick the best switch for the temperature you wanted. And so for our research, we picked 39 degrees Celsius, which is known as a fever state. But for a soil organism, you might not want to pick that temperature. And so You would need to think about your system and what changes you wanted to control and then work backwards from there. Let's talk a little bit now about these magnetic nanoparticles. Besides being induced in terms of their motion by the magnetic field, how are they interacting with the bacteria itself? So the particles are actually purchased commercially from a company called Cinemag-D is the brand name. We purchased these particles and then co-incubate them. So we mix them together with the bacteria and then let them grow together for two hours in the lab. 
And after this process, we looked at them with microscopes to see what that interaction was. And so we saw that they were actually coating the bacteria after this two-hour process. So whenever the nanoparticles are binding to the bacteria, is that how it's heating up or is it the electromagnetic waves that are specifically heating it up? So we actually try to avoid the term binding, and you may hear me using a little more generalized language, and that's on purpose. So we use the word association, and that's just because the methods we use, like microscopy, we did not go any further to look into that association. So we can't claim binding in our particular system. That's not to say that it isn't. It could be. And so with this association, we have a more direct energy transfer with those magnets in the form of heat energy. And the thought behind that is that in a system like in a mouse or maybe in a human, you want to heat the bacteria, but you don't want to hurt the surrounding tissue in your patient. You only want to target what you're mean to. And so that's why we try to get that association with the bacteria for that heat transfer. So once the samples have been heated and the magnetic nanoparticles have become associated with the bacteria, how do the magnetic nanoparticles impact the light output of these bacterial samples that you're trying to measure in order to see that the actual proteins are being produced? So the magnetic nanoparticles actually don't interfere with the measuring of the light output. They're completely different methods of detection which is nice for our purposes. The only challenge to consider in this process is if the heat transfer is enough from the magnets to the nanoparticles to the bacteria to increase the temperature and turn on light production and our protein production. So that's the main thing to consider. You may get heating from the magnets, but it might not be enough to turn on that temperature-sensitive repressor. And so that is something we had to change our parameters on early on to get a response. So afterward, I would assume that you don't want to just leave the magnetic nanoparticles in the system. How do you get it out of there afterward? So these magnetic nanoparticles fall into a category that are generally filtered out by the liver and then pass through the system normally. As for the bacteria, there are a variety of different ways to kill off the bacteria. For instance, just increasing the temperature even higher to get rid of the bacteria from your system. But again, the bacteria are generally recognized as safe and shouldn't be harmful. Well, it sounds like you're nearing the end of your PhD. I'm really curious, what are you looking to do afterwards once you've completed your doctorate? So I'm working towards applying for some fellowships for postdoctoral positions. One of them is in science, technology, and policy through the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And in the meantime, I'll be working on science communication a little bit more and education. And so one of these positions I'm really excited to be starting is at the Michigan State University Museum in the CoLab studio where I'll be a collaborator working with the 1.5 degrees Celsius exhibition. Oh, that's really cool. I actually just had a meeting with the museum today, and MSU SciComm is considering creating a science fashion show, so maybe we'll be in touch about that. It was really great talking to you, Emily, about your research. Good luck on your future. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. 
If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.